Welcome to the first ever audio presentation from Fangraphs.com. I am Fangraphs contributor and occasional destroyer Carson Sestouli. In today's episode, we bring you a roundtable discussion with three Fangraphs contributors whose names you will almost definitely recognize. Mr. Dave Cameron, Mr. Matt Clausen, and Mr. Eric Manning. In the discussion, uh, the roundtable, we have uh, we cover some territory in the AL West with teams... Uh, like Oakland and Seattle that have seen a lot of player movement. And uh, uh, even more than that, we just get to hear Dave Cameron talk a whole bunch, which is pretty exciting. And with that, folks, I now introduce the inaugural round table. Hello, listeners. You are listening to the maiden voyage of Fangraphs Audio. Um, I'm here now for the inaugural edition of the Fangraphs round table. We'll see how this works out. I am currently joined, hopefully by cell phone, uh, Fangraphs editor, USS Mariner editor, king of the internet, David Cameron by cell phone? Yes, I'm here. Excellent. Awesome. That's great. I'm also joined by um, Fangraphs contributor. You know him as Devil Fingers, perhaps. He's an expatriate currently living in Canada, Matt Clausen. Hello. Good. Excellent. And finally... We have on the line also a Fangraphs contributor, former uh, contributor, editor, etc. of Future Redbirds, current owner-operator of playahard9.wordpress.com, Mr. Eric Manning. Hey, guys. Yes, good. We are all here. Excellent. Well, as we are in the presence of Mr. Cameron, uh, who obviously cares a great deal about the Mariners, and the Mariners have had quite the off-season... Uh, in terms of player personnel movement, let's start there. Um, we can we can open it up to the AL West in general. We uh, we have seen Seattle make quite a few moves this off season. I think the most recent, correct me if I'm wrong, is Ryan Garko. Um, there are a lot of players currently on the roster, um, and I guess I'm sort of curious as to how things are going to shake out in terms of who's getting playing time. Uh, you know, without going to something like an 11-man pitching staff, which I think maybe R.J. Anderson mentioned today, uh, today Friday on the blog. Dave, what's going on over there, and who's going to be playing where, and how much time are they going to get? Yeah, you know, I think right now it's kind of a hodgepodge. The Mariners have decided to give themselves a significant amount of depth, uh, mainly because they have guys like Milton Bradley on the roster who, you know, reliability is not his middle name. And so I think they've decided that, you know, when... When your number three hitter spends 40 or 50 years, days a year on the disabled list and gets suspended for another 10 or 15, uh, they want to have some depth behind him. So um, right now I think there's a left field DH job share that kind of uh, depends on where Bradley's playing on any particular day. Uh, if a left-hander's on the mound, you'll see Eric Burns in left field. If a right-hander's on the mound, you might see Bradley in left with Griffey DHing. You might see Langer hands out in left field with Bradley DHing. Uh, you know, some days you might see Sean Pickens in left field if enough people get hurt. So. I think it's going to be a, a mixed match of uh, players between left field and DH in Seattle. Okay. Um, now, uh, the, the most recent signing was Ryan Garko. Is that going to be a straight-up platoon uh, with Casey Kochman, or what? No, I, I think that makes the most sense for getting Garko into the lineup because the DH at-bats are pretty well taken with Burns and Bradley against left-handers. Uh, you'd think the only way Garko is going to get into the lineup against southpaws is uh, if he plays first base. Last year, Wakamatsu was pretty uh, anti-platoon. He ran Russ Brandon out there against righties and lefties alike. 
it'll be interesting to see if they're willing to platoon Kochman this year. He's obviously not the hitter that Brandon is, so uh, I would imagine Garko will probably play most of first base against left-handed pitching, and then he'll play some DH when Bradley's hurt. Now, uh, Mr. Clausen, I was I was talking about this with you a little bit. Um, you don't necessarily see a big split in Ryan Garko. I mean, if Wakamatsu might play the platoons, but it, you know, in your opinion, is that the way to do it necessarily? Well, no, I think it is. What I was saying earlier was that, uh, as we'll probably post about in the B-series in, in the near future, fan, uh, fan graphs, uh, that uh, platoon splits are, are not usually as big as they seem, especially for right-handed hitters. So my point was that if they get into a situation, it's not as if Garko's just a guy who can hit lefties. Uh, his split's a little bigger than your average righty, but uh, there's not as much variance among right-handed hitters as far as their platoon skills go. And so... Uh, to see, see, see if I can make this boring as possible. His well, no, please do. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> he regressed more heavily towards the average right-handed hitter. I mean, now platoons still work because everyone has some sort of split, and most people's splits are like the average. So lefties are going to get righties better. Righties, righties are going to hit lefties better. So yeah, it makes sense as a platoon given the relative hitting s- skills of uh, Garko and Koshman, which aren't great for first baseman. So that's an efficient way to do things. But it's not as if uh, Garko is a guy who's going to. Uh, have a you know a 400 woba against uh, left-handed hitters and a 280 against right right-handed hitters. Okay, yeah. Now, Mr. Manning, are you seeing the situation pretty similarly? How have you been reading this uh, roster glut over in Seattle? Oh, I don't know. I think uh, Jack Zarednik. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Jack Z or whatever. I'm I'm a little envious, Dave. I mean, you got a pretty cool GM who it just seems like every move that he makes, I'm like. Yeah, that's cool. That's a good move. They trade for Cliff Lee. They get Sean Figgins. It's just like they've just had like the off season of off seasons to me. It seems like, and so um, you know, the more depth, the better. And you know, I just pretty much agree with with you guys. And you know, I'm sure that they'll find a way to manage it. And injuries happen, and and people struggle. And so you know, having this this glut is, I think, a good thing. And I just think it's got to be pretty exciting, you know, to be a Mariners fan after. You know, seeing futility year in and year out, and now things are just really turning around because they got one of the brightest GMs around now. Yeah, now Dave, you—I mean, you're obviously a Mariners fan. I mean, you know, your job maybe number one is to be—you know—to look at all teams, you know, with some somewhat something regarded, you know, like equality. But does it feel good to have a guy like Jack Z in charge? Yeah, you know, after uh, about five years of uh, six years or however long it was, the Bill of AC reign, like, I really needed to like escape to Fangraphs so that I could write about things other than, oh God, no, don't do that. And uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, now that I can actually uh, write at Fangraphs uh, and not have it just be the place where I write about good transactions because my team is a disaster, yeah, this, this feels a little better. So I, I feel like uh, I'm a little more even keeled, and uh, I'm not just uh, escaping to an island of good moves and not not horrible transactions. So uh, I like this a lot better. Right. Well, okay. As a, oh, as a Royals fan, that, as a Royals fan, that's exactly where I am at. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but the uh, the prospects for improvement are are minimal at this point, don't you think? How long is Dayton signed in there, uh, Matt? Uh, oh, I think I, I'm I'm pretty sure it's until uh, my six month old son graduates from from Harvard. Wow. Awesome. Is he already accepted? Well, you know, he will be with this. I mean, there's no off there's no off position on the genius wish. 
Carson. So. <laughs> I understand. I understand how it is. Now, there's another team though that has uh, created something like a roster glider. Certainly in the outfield, uh, the Oakland A's. It seems they've taken the the three center outfield idea uh, beyond the logical conclusion. I think they have a seven center field outfield now, but you can't do that legally in NBA or the NBA. You definitely can't do it in the NBA. In the major leagues, you can't do it either. Uh, how do you guys, anyone jump in if you want, how do you guys foresee the outfield situation playing out in Oakland? I, I think the one of the, the key, uh, when you look at like these, you know, they have four players who are going to play primarily, and I know you can look at it and say, well, somebody's not going to be able to play every day, but realistically, Ryan Sweeney and Rajay Davis both had like the year of their lives last year, and Coco Crisp was coming off shoulder surgery. So I think you can look at all three of these guys and say, there's a reason to not expect them to play 150, 155 games this year. There's questions about all three of them. I think you can look at any of those guys and say, uh, I'm willing to limit them to 120, 130 games, and then when you take 30, 30, 40 games away from each of them, and all of a sudden you've got another full-time job for a fourth guy. So I think you can make a four-outfield platoon work uh, where you move guys around depending on who's healthy, who's playing well, who regresses. I think it's a good idea to have uh, four good outfielders and not be necessarily depending on Coco Crisp or Ryan Sweeney or Rajay Davis or whoever. I think having some depth there behind those guys is actually a good plan. Does anyone see Michael Taylor getting any playing time this year? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, you know, I was just thinking about uh, actually Travis Buck, uh, who might be, I was going to say, uh, it, it star- in, in, in Oakland starring Travis Buck as uh, Michael Saunders. Uh, yeah. But it actually it might be Taylor. Uh, I think... Uh, other people might be are probably better prospect mavens than I am. I think Taylor uh, is supposed to have more offensive upside, obviously than Buck. Well, I shouldn't say obviously, but then than Buck or or Saunders. And I had uh, sort of forgotten about him, but I guess obviously they're not depending on. It seems to me they're not planning on him contributing much, at least in the first half. Uh, after <laughs> uh, somebody inevitably goes down with an injury with those guys, as, as Dave was talking about, and. Uh, uh, but that, I mean, I guess the other, yeah, that'd be the other question: is what happens to Travis Buck? I mean, is he is he a goner? Yeah, Eric Manning, do you have a do you have any predictions on where Travis Buck ends up? Uh, I don't have any predictions on where he would end up. I mean, I as a Cardinal fan, I'd be interested in as a, uh, a fourth outfielder or something like that. I, I don't know. I mean, he kind of had a bad year. A lot of that was some some hitting into some tough luck last year. I mean, they definitely have. A lot of the same kind of guys, you know, in the outfield in Oakland. I mean, I'm kind of interested in, in how well they're – that's just going to be one amazing defensive outfield. I mean, I don't know if you're going to be able to get anything by those guys. It's just all of those guys can play center field and not just play it but play really well. And so, um, you know, it's – that's they got definitely got some enviable, enviable depth. I could talk um, <laughs> that outfield there. No, you're doing you're doing a good job talking. So, so, so this is the thing, though, is we we have those two teams, uh, Oakland and Seattle, both seem to have, uh, you know, kind of bought up, not necessarily marginal talent, uh, but talent. You know, they're probably getting a value for the dollar. Um, we were talking about this, you know, before we uh, we hit the record button. Uh, how does this? How does a situation like this? How does it work with with regard to the fact that that Johnny Damon, who's probably I don't know estimating like about a win better than any of these guys, but also about, uh, Clausen, you were thinking maybe seven million, just throwing it out there. 
it's interesting. Johnny Damon is still available, and yet we have two teams that have stocked up on you know maybe more marginal type but still valuable outfielders. What, what goes? Where does Johnny Damon end up now? Is there a market for him? I, I think that you know anytime you have a good player of Johnny Damon's uh, ability, a market will develop for him just out of uh, somebody who's going to get to spring training and say, you know what, Johnny Damon can actually help us, and we've got some we got some million dollars laying around. Uh, a player of Johnny Damon's caliber is not going to not find a job. Uh, he certainly won't find the kind of job that he was looking for, but i got to think between Detroit or Atlanta, or, there's going to be a team out there that gets to spring training and says, you know what, Johnny Damon can still hit. Uh, yeah, he, he doesn't throw very well, but we can overlook that, and we're going to give him, we're going to find a home for him. So I think Johnny Damon will land a job, but unfortunately Scott Boris has painted him into a corner where he's just going to have to take the first offer he gets. Yeah, the, the, this sort of reminds me of the situation that unfolded with Veritech last year, also a Scott Boris client, where... Uh, there were some negotiations going on. I think in the case of Veritech, it was uh, uh, was it refusing arbitration that would have been uh, much more lucrative for him. In this case, we have Johnny Damon. Uh, someone correct me if I'm wrong. He was offered maybe two years, 14 million with the Yankees. Was that about right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And so now we have a situation where he's probably even going to have a hard time getting one year, seven million. Is this? I mean, it seems like Scott Boris. This has happened to him a couple times. He has a reputation of, you know, getting quite a bit of money for certain of his clients, but sometimes it seems to the detriment of other of his clients. Is this? I mean, is this a pattern, or do you think these are just anomalies? Hey, Clausen, go ahead, take it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm the best person to talk about that. I think there was an. I wish I could remember where it was. I'm sure somebody else read it. There was an interesting piece, in, uh, more than one place, about exploring. You know, Boras is a lawyer. That there might be a conflict of interest here because Boras's uh, priorities, obviously, this offseason were uh, they started with started and ended with Matt Holiday, and so that was sort of had to be the first chip to fall. And then, but of course, I mean. When you talk about limited free agent dollars out there, of course, uh, all players are in competition. We talk about J- Johnny Damon. He's in direct competition for a job with Matt Holiday. Now, now, of course, everyone would take Holiday over Damon. But if you're out there promoting Holiday as the number one guy, you know, once he's gone uh, and gets a lot of the money, uh, teams aren't going to, you know, if you're focusing your energies on that, uh, it's going to affect how, how hard you're selling Johnny Damon, right? Yeah, no, I mean, Mr. Cameron, it, it seems to me there's a fine line between between uh, creating a market for a player, so like you know, you sign Matt Holiday for X number of dollars per year. Are you setting the bar for how much left fielders are going to cost during the year, or are you actually just putting your own client Johnny Damon out of a job? Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting situation. I mean, Boris has certainly handled this in the past, where he's had multiple uh, players at the same position and the same winner, and he's been able to find them all jobs. And so I think his uh, theory on this is that he can always find jobs for talent, and to most of the extent, it's worked. But I will say this, I think Boris is willing to sacrifice players here and there for a greater good, and you know, I think people who join up with Boris should be aware of that, and they probably are uh, aware that he's got an agenda that he's going to push that is going to be in the best interest of the entire corporation as a whole and get maximum salaries for all of his guys, and if one guy has to take it on the chin every couple of years, that's, that's a trade-off Scott's willing to make. And so, you know, I think if you sign up with Scott Boris as your agent, you have to be aware of the fact that he's got a big stable of guys and there's going to be some winners where you're not his number one guy. And, uh, you know, it's a trade-off. So if you want to go with a smaller agent who's going to give you more of a focus and really try and be out there and pitch you as the guy, you can do that. But if you want Scott Boris on your side, uh, there might be a winner where you're the sacrificial lamb. And I think this year that was Johnny Damon. So, uh, actually, Eric Manning, you... You're a big uh, Cardinals fan. You were probably uh, you had front row seats 
for those negotiations. Um, I mean, when you when that was unfolding, when that situation was unfolding, where the Cardinals were dealing with Boris and Holiday, did you get the sense that there was uh, any other uh, of his clients that really mattered to Boris at the time, or, or was it sort of like uh, you know full steam ahead for Matt Holiday? I would say full steam ahead, definitely. I mean, it just seemed like that was his focus. Um, that's all you heard about. Every you know couple of minutes or couple of days, there was some mystery team that was supposedly interested in Matt Holiday. And, uh, you know, he was just out there pushing him as hard as he could. And I think that's what happened with Damon is he just got kind of, uh, you know, he was the sacrificial lamb, like like Dave said. It's just um, he wasn't being pushed out there as hard. Other teams were filling, you know, their needs through, you know, kind of other ways. <clears throat> some of the signings, maybe some some uh, lower budget moves. And, and Damon just kind of got pushed aside. But, you know, I'm kind of baffled that, you know, no team has been interested in Damon at all. I mean, I know he's getting older, but he is coming off one of his best years offensively, and, uh, you know, he still can play. And so um, you would think by now something would have happened. But, you know, I think also Damon just kind of really overplayed, you know, they kind of overplayed it himself with the Yankees. I mean, they had a pretty good offer on the table, and I think these guys just sometimes let their pride get in the way, and, you know, they should have, he just should have, uh, taken that offer when when he still had the chance well i think it's good that we here at the uh fangraphs uh, roundtable don't let the pride get in our way i think that's pretty obvious <laughs> um, yeah I have no pride left good good the um now we're talking about off-season moves here um uh, there was an article, Mr. Cameron. I think you wrote it with regard to Minnesota. Was it? Were you? Did you write the Orlando Hudson article today, or am I? Uh, yeah, that was me. That was you. Orlando Hudson, certainly not a bad signing, but as you said, Minnesota had basically d- had a terrific offseason even before him. Yeah, I think he was really the cherry on top. I mean, I think Minnesota was in a, an interesting position where the rest of their division uh, is not very good, and Detroit was making active steps to make themselves worse this winter. So they saw an opportunity to say, you know what? Uh, we're trying to convince Joe Maurer to stick around. Let's, let's really improve this team. And, you know, I thought the J.J. Hardy trade was great for them, uh, getting Carl Pavano to accept arbitration so that they have very little risk and get a quality middle rotation starter to add to the young guys they already had. Uh, you know, adding Orlando Hudson, picking up Jim Tomey as a, as a depth guy or a potential uh, DH option if Google falls apart or ends up playing left field. Uh, you know, I think they, they had a lot of good moves and just adding Orlando Hudson to upgrade their infield. I mean, you know, I think you look at it, and if they, if they can sign Maurer to a long-term contract extension, it's really hard to have a better offseason uh, for the Twins than, than that. I mean, you bring in three or four quality players, and you lock up your franchise player long-term, and you probably put a stranglehold on a, a mediocre division for this year and maybe the next couple of years. That's a good winner. Right. Now, meanwhile, this week, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, and that's your territory, uh, yeah. at least near it, uh, signed Kevin Gregg. To uh, I, I forget the exact terms of the contract. Was it one year, X number of dollars? What are we talking? Two point seven five. Two point seven five. Uh, Clausen, how do you see that working out up there with Kevin Gregg? Why why are they signing relief help right now? You got me. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. I think uh, Cameron had some thoughts on this uh, by email that they're probably gonna you know uh, Downs Scott Downs is a really good left-handed reliever. Uh, Jason Frazier has been uh, pretty good as well. They're probably looking to, uh, to make a trade. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe they're going to try to 
get what few good prospects Houston has with with, with middle relievers or something. That that might make sense. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, uh, yeah, that, that that would be my thought. Some other kind of trade involving Downs and or Frazier. Preparing for a trade now. Um, I assume, as a as a fan of the the NL Central, Mr. Manning, you saw at least some Kevin Gregg this year. I think I was looking at his stats. He allowed three home runs uh, two years ago as the closer for the Marlins. He allowed 13 last year. Did you get to see Kevin Gregg at all pitching? Did you see a, a big difference between him last year with the Cubs and the year before with the Marlins? I don't think it was so much of a big difference as, you know, he's pitching in a different ballpark, um, Chicago. I mean, I guess the home run factors for Florida and Chicago probably aren't that different, but it's just that's the kind of the way it is with relievers. I mean, you know, one year you're going to have some great home run luck, and then maybe the next year you're just going to get, uh, you know, that it's going to come back on you. And so um, Kevin Gregg is is not a great reliever. He's not anybody's idea, I think, of a closer. I mean, he's kind of a solid middle guy, somebody you'd want to throw out there and, you know, average to a little bit above average leverage, but you're not going to want to throw him out there in, you know, super high leverage situations all the time and trust him. And I, I think that's kind of where the Cubs kind of missed it, but they didn't want to pay Kerry Wood the money that he was asking for. And so I don't know what other options they have. It's kind of, I'm not remembering at the time what, what else was out there for him, but um, you know, I, I didn't think it was a great move when they signed him. I wasn't surprised to see him struggle. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe like Matt said, he'll, he'll pitch well enough to where, you know, a general manager will see, um, you know, maybe a better player than he really is and they could swap him for a decent prospect at the deadline. But, you know, I, I just kind of was a, a kind of a confusing move for me too, but. Well, now I want to I, I want to get through uh, one more topic right here, and th- this also concerns the NL Central. Uh, Mr. Cameron, you wrote about it midweek, but I want to start with I want to start with Mr. Manning. Are you afraid as a as a Cardinals fan? Are you afraid of the Cincinnati Reds at all this year? I'm not afraid of them, but I think they are definitely improved. I mean, I I see them kind of. I've seen some. I think it was the. Um, uh, I can't remember the the Cairo projections were real high on them. I think they call for them to win like 86 games and were like the favorites for the NL wild card and that kind of surprised me um just looking at them on paper I see them as far as win talent goes you know maybe 82 you know maybe more wins than that being that they're playing in kind of an easy division um but I think they've improved because Scott Rowland is, is going to be an improvement over Edwin Encarnacion um Rowland's a good fielder he, when he's healthy he can still hit decently and Encarnacion is just a, a butcher at third base um they're replacing Willie Tavares I mean who's basically a, a definition of a replacement player with Drew Stubbs and Stubbs has just got a, a reputation in the minors for being just this amazing defensive outfielder and he's not that bad of a hitter either I mean he's not a great hitter but you know he he's he's solid and then Jay Bruce can't help it to get better I'm probably just going over Dave's points but um, Joey Votto is is a very good first baseman. Um, I, their pitching really hasn't changed, and I think that's going to be, you know, kind of what keeps them back. Um, maybe they should have been more aggressive this offseason. I don't I don't know what they had in their budget, but you know, somebody like a, a Joel Pinheiro or, or somebody probably could have helped them. And I'm surprised they weren't a little more aggressive in the offseason and signing some pitching because that's the area that they really need to improve upon. Their defense is good, and their offense should only get better as, as players are healthy and, and 
um, are coming up through the minors like Bruce and Chris Dickerson. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of what baffled me is why they weren't as aggressive in the offseason and getting some pitching. But Walt Jockety is the guy who will, you know, trade the farm system for somebody if need be. I mean, I know that from firsthand experience. And so they could this offseason, you know, maybe they see they're in, you know, position to, uh, I would fully expect Jockety to, to strike and, and, you know, deal some prospects for pitching. Uh, Mr. Cameron, how do you respond to that? We had, I think, you know, uh, Mr. Manning cited the Cairo projections, perhaps, and those were close, uh, at least uh, high 80s. He's thinking maybe more low 80s for wins. Where do you fall on that? Yeah, you know, I think I'm probably going to put more close to the high 80s. I think I'm a little higher on their pitching staff than, uh, than maybe Eric is. I think uh, Harang is one of those guys where, you know, he's had some pretty high home to fly ball rates over the last couple of years, so it might be this impression that he's just kind of a, a mid-level, mediocre starter. Uh, Aaron Herring is really good. I mean, he's run three to three to four uh, K-to-walk rates over the last few years. But if he can keep the ball in the park, and I know that park's small, but if he can keep the ball in the park, he's a, he's a number one, number two type starter. Maybe not a real ace, but he's, he's a good pitcher, and I think they've got some talent behind him with Homer Bailey. He's kind of uh, one of those guys who could certainly break out and have a good year. Uh, you know, Johnny Cueto. Uh, Brunson Arroyo is not a terrible mid-rotation starter, so I don't think the pitching is bad. And, and I will throw this out there. I think one of the things that people miss in a lot of off-seasons is uh, prior year trade deadline pickups. I think like a guy like Scott Rowland or Jake Peavy, they never get discussed in improvements over a winner because they happened last year, but they did, the Reds didn't really have Scott Rowland last year. So this is a significant upgrade. It's like they went out and traded for an all-star third baseman. Even though they didn't actually make the move this winter, it's still an addition to the 2010 team. I think Peavy is similar to the White Sox, but those guys who they – the teams acquired last year at the trade deadline, they're just like winter acquisitions. And I think if we would have seen them go for a Scott Rowland, maybe uh, we would have a better impression of what they did this winter. They just did it a few months early. Well, now, you, you had firsthand uh, uh, experience with Vladimir Ballantin, and he was one of those uh, midseason acquisitions for the Reds. Is he going to get playing time over there? Because he actually played pretty well in limited time with them towards the end of last season. Yeah, you know, I think he'll end up probably playing a little bit of left field, probably split time. I don't think he's a, I don't think he's a regular. I think Valentin has one of those skill sets where he's really made to be a part-time outfielder. He can really crush a fastball and hit. And he had the longest home run in all of baseball last year. He's got serious power, but the flaws in his game are also pretty obvious. He's not a very good defender. He's not bad, but he's not. He's not great. Uh, he struggles against breaking balls, so you don't really want him in the lineup against right-handers that often. But as a platoon outfielder, I think he's got a chance to do what Johnny Gomes did for them last year, where he just provides a lot of power, hits a bunch of home runs on fastballs, and plays cover-your-eyes defense at times. Okay, now does uh, does anyone have anything pressing that they need to uh, that they need to discuss? Okay, good. Uh, well, th- th- <laughs> that's fine. Uh, this has been an excellent inaugural roundtable. Uh, for Fangraphs. So for uh, Mr. Eric Manning, for uh, for Mr. Matt Clausen, and for Mr. Dave Cameron. Fellows, thank you very much. Alright, thank you. Yep. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And uh, I am Carson Zestuli. We're signing off. Uh, this has not been that bad, actually. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you, listener, for listening to uh, uh, our inaugural roundtable, Fangraphs Audio. Thank you very much. Bye. That concludes our first ever audio presentation. Uh, as always, um, as in with all of our posts, uh, please do feel free to uh, add any comments you have, uh, particularly in the way that the show might be improved, or if you merely desire to heap praise on us, uh, that's totally fine as well. Don't forget to visit Fangraphs.com early and often, and also don't forget to join us next week as we continue in this absurd experiment.
Thank you very much.